Hello and welcome to episode 3 of More Queer Nymphs, a podcast in which I explore feminism, gender, sexuality and identity in ancient myth. I'm Claire M. Coombe, writer, freelance classicist, and this week I'll be focusing on Lamia. As ever, a content warning. Please put self-care first when you listen and be aware that this episode will cover issues of child loss and child murder. So Lamia. She was a daughter of Poseidon, but her mother is, ah, of course, unrecorded. This lineage would explain some of the early conceptualization of her as a sea deity or monster. Lamia is the Greek for a large, dangerous loan shark. But this tradition ceases to be dominant. Instead, Lamia is recognized as a Libyan queen who caught the eye of Zeus. Now, I often make the assumption in this podcast that all women impregnated by gods are the victims of rape. But we have a limited narrative about the nature of this relationship. We can say that it was prolonged, since Lamia bore multiple children by Zeus. However, that in no way validates the idea that the relationship was consensual on Lamia's part. Though, as we shall see, Zeus does show a strange concern for her. Much like our Callisto story, this is a myth of Hera's revenge and of transformation, though of a different sort. Hera's first act of vengeance is to steal Lamia's children by Zeus. Lamia is driven mad with grief and tears out her own eyes, or is given by Zeus the gift of removing and replacing her eyes at will, as well as, perhaps, prophecy. The eye thing may have been a response to a further curse by Hera, in which Lamia was denied the ability to sleep. Lamia becomes a monster, allowing her to devour the children of others. Some say Zeus does this, but probably most commonly it's her own monstrous nature that turns her from beautiful queen into a distorted and ugly figure. This may have included the appearance of a shark, though other accounts also have her as Angripedal, with a snake's tail instead of legs. We should also note that Diodorus Siculus demythologizes Lamia as a queen of Libya who ordered her soldiers to snatch babies from their mothers and kill them. And also, just because it's interesting, Aristophanes lists Lamia's testicles in two plays as part of a list of foul-smelling objects, introducing an element of gender ambiguity. Lamia is often considered the first vampire. Later, the Lamiae were beautiful ghostly women who seduced young men for their bodies and blood or flesh, and were synonymous with the Empuzai. So, that's a quick summary, but what to make of this myth? On the one hand, we might understand the myth as a metaphor for extreme grief, namely a mother's loss of children. A parent's loss of a child is undoubtedly an event of extreme pain, and to experience a loss of control or feeling crazed is a recognisable and understandable response. We might even understand the loss of a child in such unexpected way, or as part of a violent act of vengeance, to be even more likely to precipitate an extreme response. That said, we then enter a problematic area when we start to analyse Lamia's particular response. A bereft mother seeking to claim other people's children for her own, or to inflict her own pain onto other mothers, is a theme explored in popular culture. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Mama, or The Alienist, to name just two films in a TV show, all explore this. Now, I haven't 
really taught much about mythological reception in pop culture, but for a minute or two I'd like to explore the Lamia theme in each of these examples. The reason I think this is worth doing is that none of our ancient sources is especially helpful in considering the psychology of Lamia's behaviour, or, if that sounds too anachronistic, at least the complexities of her character and her response beyond the abstract symbolism. There will be slight spoilers in this discussion, incidentally, so feel free to skip forward a few minutes if you don't want to know more. So beginning with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, it's an American psychological horror from 1992, and the title is taken from Proverbial Phrase. It's actually from a largely forgotten poem of 1865 by William Ross Wallace in Praise of Motherhood. And the line goes, The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. The film tells the story of a young woman whose husband is accused of sexual assault in his role as a doctor. He kills himself, she miscarries, and then she seeks revenge on the woman who first reported him. She infiltrates the family as a nanny in an effort to claim the children for her own. The parallels with the Lamia story are reasonably obvious. A woman loses her fetus rather than living children but also has an emergency hysterectomy, so loses all chances of having children. The explanation is connected to the baby's father's sexual misdemeanours. Whereas Lamia is unable to seek revenge on Hera, the actual perpetrator of the crime, the woman in the film, Mrs Mott, creates a narrative of blame against Claire, the woman who first reported being assaulted by her husband in an antenatal examination. In both stories, the second party, who is not to blame for the loss of children, becomes the target. However, Mrs Mott really seeks only to have children, even stolen children, whereas Lamia kills the children she takes from other women. In this sense, we might find a closer parallel with Mama, a 2013 supernatural horror film in which a spectral figure claims custody of two abandoned children, and when they are finally found and housed with their uncle and his partner, attempts to take them as her own. She turns out to be the ghost of a young mother who leapt into a gorge with her baby, losing the child on the way down as she plunged to her own death. In the end, for a child to become mama's own is ostensibly for that child to die. Here we have a baby stolen by a mixture of the authorities who are chasing the mother and that mother's own leap from the clifftop. We might understand her desire to take a child to join her in her ghostly existence as akin to why Lamia killed other women's babies to take them into the darkness in which she dwelled. In season two of The Alienist, a woman whose child was taken from her for adoption seeks a replacement baby, but each time ends up killing the child. Here we see a trope that feels fitting with the Lamia myth in which a woman is seeking a replacement for her own baby but her own severe mental state makes it impossible to separate this from killing. So in each of these variations on the Lamia story, we see a profound and destructive effect caused by the loss of a child, and in each case, blame lies in part with a second party. The ramifications, however, play out not with the punishment of that figure, the husband, the authorities, or even the woman herself, but rather with revenge exacted on a third party, who was innocent of any part in the loss of the child. Furthermore, each of these mothers seeks a replacement child at least as much as they seek vengeance. Undoubtedly, cases of such madness triggered by or even caused by grief is a documented reality. That said, the premise does need to be called into account, especially when it permeates a myth whose implications are far wider than a single fictional work 
and which have their origins in folklore, old tradition and societal norms. What I guess I'm getting at is a reductiveness in the depiction of women with respect to motherhood. As far as my own experience in research goes, this is a narrative pattern that looks uniquely at mothers, though please please write to me if you can give me examples with similar behaviour from male protagonists in fictional film. So here's the issue. Lamia's story reduces her identity to motherhood and nothing more. If she was indeed a queen, we hear nothing about her power, assuming she had some. Her story, in summary, is that she had children, her children were stolen, she became a monster. She begins a sexual object, becomes a domestic object, and when she can no longer fulfil either requirement of a woman in a patriarchal society, she has no choice but to be identified as a monster. I'm not suggesting for a moment that women cannot or do not do terrible things, including to children, and especially in states of extreme grief or other psychological distress. It may not be commonplace enough to warrant the creation of a trope, such as Lamia's story becomes, but it's clearly an interesting and challenging reality that's worthy of depiction in story. Yet there are multiple levels of guilt, blame and victimhood in this story. Without much depiction in ancient texts of Lamia's own voice or psychological state, we're required to focus on narrative aspects and these assure us that Lamia's actions come from a wider powerlessness. This is by no means a justification, but it is perhaps an explanation for why a woman in her situation might perform the terrible acts that she does. So firstly, Lamia is a victim of Zeus. Whether or not she was consensual to their sexual relationship, the power imbalance is clearly problematic. On the literal level, we have the god-mortal imbalance. Essentially, she has no choice in this dynamic whether to consent or not. We know Zeus will take what he wants regardless. The cost to her of rebuttal would be, well, what's evident from plenty of other women in myth. We might see here a metaphor for relationships between boss and employee, or lecturer and student. They may be consensual, but the power dynamic lessens the meaning of the less empowered figure's ability to consent. We also have a metaphor for women who fall for married men. I don't want to make critical judgment on all such relationships, for which there may be many explanations, but the power imbalance is a common truth. The man retains control as long as he is the one retaining a marriage and an affair, especially if he will not commit to either. Both wife and lover become victims to loss of control over the relationship beyond the option to end it. As noted, this may not be an option for the Lamias of the world. When she has Zeus's children, her vulnerability is only increased. Lamia's powerlessness is also demonstrated through her choice of vengeance. The two figures whom she wants to punish are surely Zeus and Hera, but this previously noted power imbalance precludes her acting on this desire. Instead, she takes out her anger on other women, taking their children so that they suffer as she does. Here, we might see a story of how extreme spiritual and mental pain can take hold of an individual. Seeing no way out of their own suffering, they at least don't want to be alone in it, this is not to condone Lamia's horrific actions, but I don't think the pattern is any less real for that. Lamia seems to have no allies or support, most likely because her relationship with Zeus has alienated her from the situation of other women, and perhaps also because of her status as a queen. She creates a perverted alternative to female friendship, where other women are dragged into the horrors of her own experience. And yeah, it's pretty fucked up. 
Now, there's perhaps obviously another interpretation of Lamia's actions. We hear nothing of what Hera does with Lamia's children. Perhaps they also die. Perhaps they are stolen away to be brought up elsewhere. Here is the goddess of family, marriage and childbirth. Perhaps we should give her the benefit of the doubt over whether she would murder the children, even her husbands by another woman. That said, she sent snakes to murder Heracles in his cradle, so my suspicion is that Lamia's children may have suffered a similar fate. Either way, whether Lamia knows that her children are dead or not, her actions in taking other women's children may show a desire to replace her own children, that's the trope used in the hand that rocks the cradle, and, to a lesser extent, the other two modern examples I mentioned. She's seeking to fill the hole in her soul left by her children by substituting them with stolen babies. Yeah, also fucked up. However, the myth is also clear that these children end up dead. Again, we can interpret this on a number of literal and metaphorical levels. On a literal level, we're faced with a woman who, each time, recognises the impossibility of replacing her own flesh and blood with these stolen children. Maybe she thinks the next time it will be different, and hence she becomes a serial abductor and murderer of babies. We might imagine a few reasons why the babies die. On the one hand, her crazed realisation that the kidnapper's not solved her pain, leading her to inflict her suffering on the baby. Perhaps we're seeing a metaphor for a woman driven to such madness that she cannot care for a child anymore. In the literal removal of her motherhood, she loses the possibility of being a mother again. This could be an aspect of her monstrosity, since by patriarchal standards, she's lost her fundamental identity, which doesn't exist beyond her children. The outcome of this could be the death of each child she takes, perhaps through neglect or physical abuse. Surely this too might reflect the situation of mothers abandoned by the system, with children for whom they simply do not have the capability to care, on account of issues such as drug addiction, poverty or health. There's another metaphorical reading of the murder of the children, however, which again explains why Lamia can only be mother or monster within a patriarchal worldview. Having lost her life, as it were, as a mother, she seeks to steal life through the fresh young blood of infants in the manner of a monster. Blood's a fundamental symbol for life in many mythologies, but perhaps most obviously in the vampire tradition. Reading through this lens, we see why Lamia will, over time, morph more recognisably into the tradition of a vampiric figure. But before I move on to discuss the proto-vampire tradition of Lamia, I think it's necessary to consider a couple of other aspects of her original monstrosity. As I've noted, Lamia joins this pathway to being a monster almost automatically, the moment she cannot fulfil her role as wife, lover or mother. Her actions, which invert motherhood through the destruction of children, confirm her status as a monster. Yet two other features make Lamia monstrous. Now firstly, Hera denies Lamia the ability to sleep, at least in one version. We might see here a subtle reference to, uh, in inverted commas, failed mothers who cannot cope with a baby who keeps them up all night and therefore become angry or hopeless. Zeus then gives Lamia the aforementioned gift, the power to take out her eyes at will. Kind of creepy. Eyelessness would serve, again, as a metaphor for monstrosity in and of itself, reminding us of Zeus's contribution to this whole situation, since it reflects the ableism in the depiction of the monstrous, the moment Lamia loses a 
supposedly recognisable marker of her humanity, her eyes, she's moved into the monster category. Now, secondly, we're told that Lamia, who had been incredibly beautiful, becomes ugly on account of her evil actions. This trope of paralleling beauty and goodness is far from confined to this myth. It occurs throughout literature, much of it great in other ways. I mean, we might consider Mr. Hyde, Dorian Gray, the demons in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, the nasty Vesson in Grimm. The monster's true face is often ugly. However, this trope is also at risk of promoting an uncomfortable ableism, or at least of conforming to society's dangerous obsession with defined ideas about physical appearance and their connection with worth or celebrity. Interestingly, however, there's a separate trope in tension with this one. Female monsters are sometimes just as likely to be seductively attractive as they are ugly. There seem to be two ways to make a woman into a monster. Either she's disallowed the identity of attractive, mobile woman to whom men are drawn sexually. Examples in the ancient world would include the ugly, aged hag, witch and Horace and other writers. Or she's beautiful and yet sexually empowered, thus misusing her attractive appearance to undermine the patriarchal power dynamic between men and women. This latter tradition is the one that pervades in the later mythological development of Lamia or indeed the Lamiae, since she becomes this model for a wider female monster which shares her name. These figures combine this concept of dangerous female beauty and sexual empowerment with the bloodthirsty nature of Lamia as a child killer. So the later Lamia seduces young men, using them for sexual pleasure and then feeding on their blood. Her vampiric qualities are more than evident in later developments in the Gothic movement and beyond. The equation of the female vampire with the woman who is aware of her own sexuality is central to novels such as Camilla, Dracula, and then like more recently, and yeah, for kind of more disturbingly, and from a female author, we see it inverted in Twilight, where it's Bella who takes that role in contrast with virtuous Edward. Fuck Twilight. A woman who acts on her sexuality is flirtatious, promiscuous, takes control in relationships is merely dangerously attractive, whatever that means, takes on the Lamia character. The equation of women who take sexual control in relationships with men having their blood sucked, as shown in the Lamia myths, reflects two levels of problematic attitudes to women. Firstly, we see the misogynistic idea in play that women who take control sexually are killing men and are monsters, not women in the societally acceptable sense. Secondly, we have the flip side, whereby men who have relationships with empowered women are emasculating themselves, accepting the disempowerment and metaphorical death symbolised by blood, their masculine power, being drained from them. It's not difficult to see how these ideas are perpetuated by misogyny in the modern day, including the idea that feminism must result in the destruction of men, manly men, rather than the destruction of the patriarchy, which I'm really all for. Um, and resonate, uh, I mean, with incel culture, I suppose, in particular. I've explored a lot of metaphorical layers to the Lamia myths in this episode, but there are probably two things that I want to focus on in conclusion. Firstly, I'm not suggesting that there isn't power in the story of Lamia's murderous behaviour as a metaphor for disempowered women responding to victimisation, grief, 
and helplessness. However, it's also reductive to see Lamia as a symbol for all women in reaction to harm done them. We might well see a familiar and justifiable anger in her, yet as a woman she's also more than a mother and more than a victim of her more powerful lover and his more powerful wife. Her stories undoubtedly become immortalised as one of monstrosity because she's viewed through a lens that says she must become a monster since she's been stripped of her identity as a woman. Perpetuating this view without challenge risks perpetuating misogyny. Secondly, in the later tradition, we can read a powerful reminder that women with power and confidence in their sexuality are also, through the same misogynistic narrative, automatically associated with bloodsucking and the emasculation or death of men and male dominance. It might be better to consider the Lamia's vampiric tendency as a reminder that powerful and sexually empowered women are a very good way to suck the lifeblood out of a toxic misogynistic gender hierarchy and societal structure that pervades in some places today. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Queer Nymphs. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing on iTunes. I'm Claire M. Coombe, and you can find out more about me and my writing at clairemcoombe.com. If you like feminist, queer retellings of myths, my novel Camilla is for sale now. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Claire M. Coombe, and you can follow this podcast on the same platforms at More Queer Nymphs. I'll be back in two weeks' time with episode four, when I'll be discussing Skiller. See you then. Here's a song about Lamia. Just you.